And uh, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter. We're continuing our exposition of the book of Hebrews. And uh, I was remarking to the session this morning before we prayed for the services that in God's providence, and these texts come to us providentially, uh, the themes of both sermons are fairly identical as it comes to the covenant and the promises of God. And so we rejoice to see that the Lord has something to say to us today of this theme in multiple times and multiple ways. So the text, uh, our sermon will consist of mostly a consideration of verses 16 through 20, but I will begin the reading at Hebrews 6 verse 11 so that we might remember the context that uh, we have come out of. Please give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of our God, Hebrews 6 verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he sware by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you, Lord, for the holy word of God and the promises in it. And as your minister now preaches the word, help him to preach the word of God so that the people of God would take hold of the precious promises, that they would flee to Christ for refuge in every every case, and that they would uh, lay hold of the promises of God as we find them in the covenant of grace. Oh, Father, would you use this time of preaching to anchor the souls of your people? And so give us your spirit that your minister may preach faithfully, and give us your spirit that the congregation may find hope uh, in heaven above where Christ is. Father, we pray that to that end, you would give unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, the grace that I should preach among your congregation, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most people, sad to say, go through life unmoored from true hope. They go through life sort of tossed to and fro, and they have no true place to anchor themselves. Their soul is not found in anything that is sure and steadfast. They do not possess, as our text says, we might, a strong consolation for their eternal destiny. Their lives are anchored, in other words, to carnal, not heavenly things. And so what happens when life's storms come? 
And the hopes of their life, the hopes that they had built their life upon, are swept away. Whether their hope is in health, their estate, their career, their family, their marriage, or their retirement account, their souls are crushed and they are despondent and depressed. Christian, in this life, you will have, this is a promise from God, you will have tribulation, you will have temptation, and you will have trials. You will have seasons where you will feel like you are about to be dashed to pieces on the rocks. And so you need something sure and steadfast to anchor your soul's hopes in. And in God's promises as found in Christ, you have such a thing to anchor your soul. And if you would anchor your soul in the promises of God, it would set your affections, we'll find out today, it would set your affections on things above where Christ is and not on things below that are so transient. And if you would do that, you would find true hope and you would find that your soul is sure and steadfast and is not anxious, is not depressed, is, is unwavering in its commitment to the Lord, come what may, through all of life's storms. And so our theme will be, out of this text, that hope in God's promises will anchor the soul by fastening it upon Christ above. Hope in God's promises will anchor the soul fastening it upon Christ above. And we'll consider that theme under three headings on your outline. First is biblical hope understood. Second is biblical hope confirmed. And third, biblical hope an anchor. First, biblical hope understood. Let us understand what true hope is. Let us ask, what is this word hope, which is so often misused and misunderstood? And I think that is no accident that this word hope is misunderstood and misused in our world because it, uh, the, the world and the devil would very much like you to think that what the world says about hope is what God says about hope. But biblically, Christian hope is faith that you possess everything God has promised you in Jesus Christ. That is hope. Hope is faith that you possess everything God has promised you in Jesus Christ, even if it is not in your present possession. It is yours, good and done. Verses 11 and 12 help us to understand this. We, we considered that a couple weeks ago. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience, what? Inherit the promises. See, it's spoken of as an inheritance, your promises that God gives you, and that you are to have a full assurance of hope, a full assurance that what God has promised, I will inherit. That is what you are to do, beloved is to have hope of this sort, to look on the promises of God in the Bible and say, by faith, I believe that they are mine. Last time you saw God has given us many promises in the Bible, that there were far too many for a single sermon, for sure. And so precious, uh, each of these promises, right, that each single promise is worthy of the world's greatest sermon certainly one I can't deliver, but each one is worthy of that, whereby are given unto us, listen to what Peter says, exceeding great and precious promises. Second Peter 1.4, 
They are great promises, too much that we could ever believe, right, if God didn't promise them. Too wonderful, too great. And they are meant not just to be great promises, but precious promises to the believer. You know, let me just put it this way, if you consider 2 Peter 1.4, where ought your treasure to be? In your bank account, beloved, which is probably way too small for your flesh's liking. But are your promise, is your treasure meant to be in the promises of God? It's meant to be in the promises of God you find in the Word. Why don't you put them in a special ledger and say, These are my treasure. These are my hope. These are my inheritance. This is true treasure laid up not on earth for the moth and rust, but in heaven, incorruptible. That is where my true treasure is. But sad to say, many Christians review their portfolio more regularly than their promises. Their 401k and their stocks may go up and down and they find anxiety in that. But the promises, they are steadfast, unchanging. And so is our hope in Christ. No man can tell you what the stock market will do today, tomorrow for sure. But I can tell you based on God's word where Christ will be and where you will be if your faith is in him not dependent on the market, not dependent on the passions of some benefactor on earth, but a heavenly benefactor who can never change and never change his mind. The child of God whose hope is stored in the promises of God will not panic when recessions and famine and trials come over body and soul. You know, I was thinking about this, something my wife had once told me, and I had to look it up where the origin was. But in Italy in the 15th century, young women began a tradition of having what are called hope chests. Some of you may be familiar with them. What their mothers would do is they would put precious family heirlooms inside of these chests to store them. And when they got married, the chest and its contents would be theirs to have. There's always a sense of great longing in the maiden to open the chest and desire the day when she would be wed. In a sense, it was her inheritance, and it was precious to her. All the heirlooms of her family that were given to her through her mother. In the same way, beloved, you who are betrothed to Jesus Christ, you are to store up God's precious promises in your spiritual hope chest, so to speak, and long for the day when they will all be yours. And you need to set your affections on the contents of that chest, rather than whatever it is that's in your bank account or whatever hopes you have for your family. No, your your true hope is found in the promises of God and nowhere else. And, And if your affections are set there, then no matter what happens in this world, beloved, you will find great, great treasure is yours, come what may. And so our hope is found in God's promises. And let's just consider one that is so near and dear to us, our hope for eternal life. That's a far better hope, friends, than you might have for a a comfortable retirement. Consider the connection between the hope of eternal life and God's promise in Titus 1-2 as you start to draw these things together. Titus 1-2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Do you see that? God cannot lie. God has given us hope based in the promise of God, and so we surely have eternal life in Christ. See, that's hope. That's true biblical hope. He doesn't say uh, uh, our wish for eternal life. That maybe, maybe we will have eternal life. No, he says God has promised it. He has promised it. He cannot lie. And so this is your hope, believer. 
you will have eternal life. There is not a doubt, and there ought never be a doubt in you if you are truly in the Lord. To doubt His promise is sin. That's where hope springs up from, that God has promised. You know, if you hold that promise then, right? If you, if you say, let me review my promise from God. I have the hope of eternal life in Christ. Why don't you work backwards into your present life then? In this life where you grapple with sin and death and misery and turmoil and trials, you see, this is not the end, is it? This is not the end. There is an eternity to come where we will have the glory of the beatific vision. What do we rejoice in? Another hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 5. What do we rejoice in? Would we rejoice if it was not a sure thing? Could we rejoice if the hope of the glory of God was how the world speaks of hope? But as hope in the glory of God is based on what God has promised, who cannot lie, we rejoice today no matter the situation because we will have the glory of God. That is the paradise of God. And that's a promise for you to file away in your spiritual hope chest. Eternal life is mine. Eternal life, and I think of the qualities then, right? As I review that hope, what is eternal life like? I go into my Bible, and I open up 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Eternal life, it says, where I shall be known even as I also I am known. Eternal glory and everlasting bliss in the love of God, where I know God as he is. But that hope would only be wishful thinking if God did not give us his promise. But since he promised it to me in Christ, and I have laid hold upon it by faith in him, I'll say it again, what a grave sin it would be for you to disbelieve it. If you're truly a believer, it is a grave sin to disbelieve what God has said. And that, though we possess many exceeding great and precious promises to hope in, to connect us to this morning's sermon in a way, one hope reigns supreme, and one hope reigns above all, and it makes all other hopes possible. And what is that hope? It is the hope of our Redeemer. God's promise to give us Jesus. Now that's something to hope in. That's something you can have. This is the Christian's greatest hope, because the Bible says all the promises of God are yea and amen in him. 2 Corinthians 1.20. It was the hope of Christ that was also the salvation of the Old Testament believer, right? You remember in Jeremiah 14.8, he is called what? Oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble. Why did Simeon, why did Simeon rejoice so greatly to hold the infant Jesus? All the hopes of God's people resided bodily in Jesus Christ. And that's why Simeon rejoiced. And he says, now, now I can depart, Lord, for I have seen the hope of Israel. 1 Timothy 1.1 puts it so plainly. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. It is a person that is our hope. Beloved, Jesus is our hope because all other hopes we have spring from him. Think of it. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. First Corinthians one thirty. All your hopes 
for righteousness, all your hopes for sanctification, all your hopes for redemption, and even for wisdom. All your hopes are found in Christ. From His adorable person come all the other promises, beloved. And so this is why the believer, at the very least, has to say, my hope is in Jesus Christ. And what you must cling to, believer, is when the Bible speaks of hope, then, as I come back to that earlier thought, it doesn't speak of hope as the world speaks. You know, we often, and this is what we need to eradicate when it comes to the Bible, and maybe we need to clean up our language, and maybe I need to, too. When we speak of hope these days, we often speak of a wish, right? I might say something like this, I hope I can visit Scotland someday. But that's me just expressing a good desire, right? That's not biblical hope at all. Uh, I might desire to go to Scotland, but I might die before I attain that desire. And so, believer, when you speak of heaven, or you speak of the resurrection in a way like that, you are sinning. The believer says the hope of heaven and the resurrection are 100% mine. They are not, the believer is just not in possession of heaven and the resurrection, but it is yours if you are in Christ. Now, is this not why the saints persevere when they have such hope, right? You know, you, you see godly men and women, they may be wasting away in illness, but you see them smiling. They say, you know what? This wasting away body, they look at it and they say, one day it will be resurrected and it will be like my Lord's body. They rot away in a dungeon, and they smile, and they say, my next stop is heaven, guaranteed by the Lord. See, that's what hope, biblical hope, produces in the soul, beloved. It teaches you that God's promises are your inheritance. Your inheritance, and you have to keep that in mind. An inheritance etched in the covenant of grace we saw this morning. These promises are called an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1.4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved where? In heaven for you. Will you review and recall your inheritance in the Bible? Oh, what a tragedy it is that so many Bibles are full of dust. You would see your inheritance, believer, here in the Bible. And if your, if your heavenly inheritance were precious to you, I suppose you would open your Bible some more. And look at the promises of God in them. You know, some men and women, it's probably not many of us, but maybe some here. Some men and women are born into this world and they inherit great lands and great riches and estates. And their family lawyers, what happens? On the day they are born often, right? Their family lawyers change the will and testament, don't they? To put them in it, right? And when their parents, who are the testators, die, the children inherit the promised inheritance. And by law, they must have it. Though it is an inheritance corruptible, defiled, and fades away with this world, the children rejoice to know that they will have it one day. But what of you, believer? What of your heavenly inheritance? In your new birth, just as it is for those who are great nobles and barons, I suppose, born in this world. In your new birth, you are given an inheritance received and laid up in heaven. Given to you by what? Not the death of your natural parents, but by the death of the testator, 
Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. And for this cause he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Do you see that language? For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. What hope we have, beloved, exceeding great and precious promises and inheritance laid up and reserved in heaven for you, come through the death of Jesus Christ and engraved into a covenant. So that every time you take the Lord's Supper and the minister pours the wine into the cup and and says the words of institution, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, you are seeing that all the promises of God are yea and amen because the testator has died to give you your inheritance. And to understand then that your hope, your hope ultimately is heavenly and not earthy, will reorient your life and anchor your soul, beloved. Because as I've said, too many Christians have earthy and earthly hopes. Our hopes are in estates and in wealth and in health and in power and in popularity and even people. But not the treasure that is laid up in heaven where our hope really resides. And so what do we find? We find that our gaze is ever on this earth and not on heaven above. Yet for Paul's sake, the Hebrews, what? They took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Hebrews 10.34. They they understood, "May, may God take all things away, but my inheritance isn't here anyhow. It is in heaven above. Yet many Christians have no sense where their inheritance is. They, they, they think that their inheritance is here on the earth. You know, I, I recall visiting um, some brethren I knew online only up to that point. The man that uh, I visited, he was an elder, he was about my age. But I had the great joy, the joy of that day was actually meeting his elderly, retired father-in-law who was suffering in body. He was quite old and weak and fragile, but according to his daughter, he was once, um, and my friend's wife, uh, he was once a mighty preacher, a missionary. Um, but at the end of his days, he was destitute, just as John Knox was when he ran his race. This man spent years preaching the gospel in foreign lands and lived off of very little, just the kindness of uh, whoever would uh, receive his ministry. And he had nothing Nothing to his name, he told me. He sat there at the kitchen table. He said, I have nothing. But he says, I have Christ. And I know I have a treasure incorruptible in heaven. I have a rich inheritance in heaven. He says, I think of the parable and I think of all the friends that I have in heaven now through the ministry that was entrusted to me. And he said, I have a daughter who loves the Lord, who loves her father, and she loves her husband, who is an elder in the church, and her uh, his daughter had built a, a, a room for him to live out the rest of his days, resolving that they would take care of him. But this man, though he had nothing in the bank, so to speak, he had everything, and he knew it. And all of his hopes, he was at the end of his days, you know, so many people in the world would be so miserable, so miserable in that man's condition. This man had the joy of the Lord and was so happy because he knew where his inheritance was. And this is an extreme case, of course. You are not called necessarily to be a missionary, but that would be to miss the point. 
The point is, you have a heavenly inheritance which is far better than anything the world can give you. More sure and more steadfast. It is said that the Christian is to walk with his eyes affixed upon heaven. You know, boys and girls, man is one creature that God designed to look up and not down. You know, my dog never looks into the heavens, never looks up, not at all. It's an earthy creature. And maybe if something got its attention in a tree or something like that, but it doesn't, like man, look up into the heavens and ponder the glory of God as is revealed through Psalm 19. That the heavens declare the glory of God. Man was made to be a heavenly creature, to peer into the heavens, that he might perceive the glory of God, that he might see in the stars, right, the promise given to Abraham. That as the stars are, so shall your descendants be. That man would look into the heavens and the clouds and see the rainbow, right? And that token of God there to never destroy the world that way again. That's what man is designed for, to have a heavenly walk. But if your hope is in earthy treasure, living your best life now, right? With perfect health, land, and goods, you will find yourself despondent and depressed, as so many are. I won't even... I had something here on social media, but there is such despondency. For the sake of time, I won't deal with it thoroughly. There is such despondency now, because, and many are depressed because they look at people who are posting all these wonderful things, so-called, of their life. They compare all these well-curated images and videos and activities of their so-called friends and see that they have very little of that in their life, and they, they find despair. And they find despondency. And there's a survey after survey showing that with the rise of social media, TikTok, and everything else, that the, the uh, cases that there's much depression even in the church now. But the Christian, the true Christian who has their hope in heavenly treasure, looks at their feed, if they're even on social media, and says, well, that's nice, but my treasure is in heaven, which is far better. Colossians 3.2 says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Where are your affections, Christian? How much of your affection is on things above? And how much of your affection is on the things below? And how does Colossians 3, 3 continue from there? For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Who's your life? Christ. Where is he? Above. Is your life here or is your life there? Your life is up in heaven above. Your life, your inheritance, it's not here on this earth, Christian. It resides in heaven because Christ is your life. He is our life, our inheritance, and our hope. And because of that, our hope can never be spoiled. We can never be put to shame so long as our hope is there. Whenever you despair and are despondent, then think, where is my life? It is above, and that's where my treasure is, and that's where my hope is. Not here, not whatever has caused me despondency. And so with such meditations to understand biblical hope, let's continue our second head, which is biblical hope confirmed. Now, we certainly have an extravagant hope in the Bible. It really is exceedingly great, right? Exceeding great. But the Lord knows due to the weakness of our faith how you need and I need assurance that we possess it. That's our weakness. That's our weakness. It's not a deficiency in God that we so poorly trust him. It's not a deficiency in God that we need assurance that when he says yes, he means yes, you will have it. We should be assured that the promises are ours in Christ if we have faith. 
But the Lord knows we are very weak, like that man who cried out to him who said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. He knows our weakness, and he's very merciful to those he loves. Merciful so that we might in this life have what verse 18 calls a strong consolation. A strong consolation. Why can we have a strong consolation? The text says, because God swore an oath to keep his promises. That's an incredible thing to meditate upon, believer. In verse 17, we read, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. There's that inheritance language. The heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath to show us who are called in crisis. Is this something you think of yourself? I am an heir of promise. I am an heir of God in Christ. He says to show us that we have this inheritance, uh, the immutability of his counsel, to show it will never waver and it will never be taken from us, but is sure and steadfast and reserved in heaven above. He says he confirmed it by an oath, something he freely did. He says he was willing more abundantly to show that we are the inheritors of the promise. You know, I think we, we look on these things and we miss the heart of God so often willing more abundantly to show us. This is kindness, isn't it? It's a condescension of a father to one who is struggling in faith and says, I am willing, son or daughter, to to show you so abundantly. I am willing to show you. I am serious. You are the inheritors of the promise. It's utterly unnecessary for him to do it. In fact, to require him to do it would be sinful on our part, but he did it freely for our sake that you would have a strong consolation of the hope that is reserved for you in heaven, that you can go through all of life's challenges knowing that I am certainly assured I have what I have in the word of God. Why does an oath give us comfort? Why did God confirm the promise that way? Well, the nature of a promissory oath reveals why an oath gives us comfort. Verse 16 teaches us actually more broadly on oaths, and we can think about that, especially those of us in the new members class. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Why do men take oaths in a court of law? Why do they say, I solemnly swear that such and such I'm about to say is the truth and nothing but the truth? It's because when they bear witness, they call on God in the fear of God to judge what they have to say. They swear on the glorious and dreadful name of God. That's the only name by which we might swear. They swear, in other words, as it says here, by the greater. They swear on the power higher than man. They swear on Jehovah. And so when we witness what they say next, we are assured in some way that there is the fear of God, or there should be in this man, and it puts an end to what the text says here, an end of all strife and contention. We are to say when they come under oath, God will judge this man. God will judge this person. And so then let us put away strife. Let us not immediately then uh, dispute everything that they have to witness and say. And it says that then there comes peace. In that, this will probably be a whole other sermon. This is why atheism can never produce the rule of law. For there is no higher power by which men can swear under atheism, though there is, in fact, a higher power. We can talk about that another time. Well, it says here, God entered into an oath to confirm his promise to us. But the difficulty is there is no higher power than God. God can't swear on a higher God. There is none. There are no other gods. There is just Jehovah. And so the text says 
He sware by himself. The highest power there is. Verses 13 and 14. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. You remember Genesis 15, when God made that covenant promise to Abraham? What was Abraham doing? He was asleep. He was asleep. God made himself a covenant through the animals. He swore by himself, right? He says, in other words, the covenant curses, they will fall on me. The covenant obligations are mine to own as well. In so doing, our text says in verse 18, that by two immutable things, two unchangeable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. What are these two immutable things? The oath that he took and the promise he made, along with the nature of God, that it is impossible for him to lie. Aren't these wonderful things? Should they not be wonderful to us? We deserve what? Hell. And here is God, so gracious, to swear on himself, to promise to those he loves that I will be God to you. For what purpose? Well, and then he doesn't lie, right? We have to know the nature of God. Numbers 13, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. If you took all these things together, it would give you a strong consolation, or maybe you could say a strong encouragement in his promises. That's what you're meant to have, a strong encouragement today. This is the fruit of hope in the promises, encouragement. How we need encouragement, beloved. Encouragement in the midst of every trial, every temptation under the sun. If you are despondent and discouraged, would you find hope again in the promises of God? Root yourselves in the promises of God. Root yourselves in the promise of Christ for you. See that he has taken an oath to give you the promises. Open, as it were, to use that analogy, your spiritual hope chest. And would you treasure and touch and hold by faith every promise he has given unto you? And as you do, be strong in faith like Abraham, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Romans 4.21. This is where our consolation comes. Not only can God not lie, not only is he sworn to do it, but he has the power to do it all. Consolation, encouragement grows and grows and grows. And I will say again, believer, we have to hear it because I think part of the problem is we don't repent of unbelief. You, if you do not possess a strong encouragement today, if you are not strongly encouraged with hope, that is sinful. It is, and I say this gently, something to be repented of. Do you know, and I need you to be pressed in this way, I need to be as well, do you know how grievous it is to be hopeless in view of the promises of God? Because it's not woe unto you, friends. You are blaspheming God. It's not anything about you. It's about what you think of God. You call God a liar. You say, oh yeah, I know you promised this, but I'll not believe that. What is that? It is to call God a liar. You call God what? He has taken an oath. You call him a perjurer. You say he has violated his oath. And you say, well, it's not enough you've given a promise. It's not enough you've taken an oath. I will refuse to be consoled, O God. What more could he do for you? 
What a great sin it is. It reveals a grave and deep distrust of God. I know many of us struggle, but your struggle must be a battle to attain a full assurance of hope. You need to cry, Lord, I believe the promise, help thou mine unbelief. Not reject them outright, but to give up hope in the promise or to lack comfort in them is grievous. This hope, this consolation does not come to all men. It comes to a select group of men and women. Only those that our text says have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us in verse 18. The word of God has set before you a great hope, the greatest hope of all. But simply hearing it does not save you. Simply hearing it does not give you this hope. Simply admiring it from afar, oh, that's a wonderful promise, does not make you a beneficiary of this hope. You must flee, the text says, for refuge in Christ and lay hold of the hope by faith in him. You are in need of refuge, friend. Do you understand what it's saying? You are in need of refuge because there is wrath coming. Otherwise, Jesus as Herald, John the Baptist, what did he warn? Of the wrath to come. The only refuge for that wrath is hope in Jesus Christ, and you must lay hold of him. Romans 5, 9, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That is a promise, isn't it? That we are justified in his blood and we are saved from wrath through him, but you have to go to him by faith. He that believeth not is condemned already. That is a promise too. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Why have you not fled for refuge? Because you love your evil deeds. You need to flee to Christ, and then you will have hope. What hope do you have outside of Christ? What promise? Who has promised you anything that you can hang your soul on? I can tell you that Jesus Christ, Son of God, has promised great and precious things, and he will keep them. He is not a liar. He is not like us. He does not lie. Well, can each of you say that you have fled to Christ for refuge? Each of you has to. Otherwise, there is wrath coming. But if you take heaven, if you take heaven through Christ, you have the greatest hope of all. Take the deed and claim to inherit heaven by faith. Well, in view of that, let's consider our final heading. And we'll be a bit more brief here. Biblical hope is an anchor. In verses 19 and 20, we read, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, this hope in Christ, Christian, this is called an anchor for the soul. An anchor for the soul. The nautical imagery in Hebrews should be pretty obvious to us by now. Boys and girls, you know that an anchor holds your ship secure. Even in stormy seas, with the right anchor at the right ground, when the anchor is dropped, the ship is fastened and secured. It may even be tossed about, right? It may still move about to and fro, but it remains sure and steadfast. And that's a picture, too, of what the Christian life is often like. We may be anchored in the promises, but our boat may be moving to and fro. All that said, our soul needs an anchor, beloved. The world 
and our pilgrimage through it, it is a voyage to get to heaven in storms and tempests. It is, it is never, never, and we need to get this right because so many of us misunderstand. It is never smooth sailing to heaven. We need to be rid of that idea. So many Christians ask, why is my life, why is it so hard and difficult? Where does the Lord, you have many great, exceedingly great and precious promises, but where does the Lord promise you an easy journey to heaven? That's not one of the promises. I had to give up on that idea a long time ago. I do know what he did promise, though. In this world, ye shall have tribulation. Now, there's a promise. All of us, then, must ask, as we will face tribulation, what is my soul truly anchored to? Is it anchored? I might even have a profession of faith, but is it like Lot's wife, anchored to this present world and my hope here? Is it anchored like so many Christians to politicians and princes and nations? Is it anchored even to your own person? Is it anchored to your own works? None of those things can anchor your soul, beloved. And that is where anxiety often arises, that your soul is anchored to something that is not steadfast and sure. When you learn to drop anchor in a boat, you learn that there is good holding ground, sand which is hard, and bad holding ground, which is often soft mud, which is soft. There is only one good holding ground, which is Jesus Christ, the rock. The only anchor to hold your soul fast in life's storms, trials, and temptations. Do you feel unmoored in this world and in life like a bit of flotsam? Well, it's because your soul is not anchored to the hope of Christ. What did he say? I love this because we often quote just part of it. What did he say after he said, in this world you will have tribulation? The entire verse says, these things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In him is our hope. In Him is our peace. In His overcoming the world and not mine, we have good cheer. Even though tribulations and trials toss us about, though the seas of our life are choppy, our steadfast anchor that keeps us from being tossed to and fro and dashed on the rocks before we reach heaven is Jesus. Note well the location of our hope in Christ. It has been reinforced throughout our sermon. Where are we anchored to? which entereth into uh, that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Some of this will have to wait till next time. But when our Lord Jesus Christ finished paying our sin debt, you remember that the veil of the temple was ripped into from top to bottom, from heaven down to earth, showing that we can now enter the Holy of Holies, heaven itself through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it says here that Jesus is our forerunner. Our hope has entered the, the, the heavenly veil. Our forerunner, the one who goes before us and ascended into heaven, blazes a path for us, and he takes us to heaven through his own work. He's cleared the wrath of God that would keep us from heaven. He has, he has died, right? He has died for us. He was raised again on the third day, and then he ascends into heaven, completing his work. And what he has done, we will do as we follow him. He is our forerunner, and so we will follow him. This is our hope as well. That This is why we do not despair over death, because as Jesus died, we must die as well. 
And as Jesus has ascended into heaven, we will then ascend into heaven. And as Jesus has had a resurrection body, we will too, on the day our body and soul are reunited. And our hope is what? That we will forever be the Lord's. Here, now, then, our hope is found in the heavenly holy of holies, where Christ our high priest is of the order of Melchizedek, interceding for us day and night, night and day, never ceasing. That's my hope. Could you make it there to heaven without it? What is that ministry like? It's found and previewed in words like this. I think of this. I think of the Lord speaking to me. Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But what? I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Luke 22, 31-32. That's our hope, that in heaven is such a great ministry. That's where my hope is found. In the holy of holies in heaven now, at the right hand of God, stands my high priest Jesus Christ, who never fails in his work for me. But beloved, are we not too much like his first disciples in the boat? Don't we say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and what does he do? He is so kind, isn't he? And he arose, and he rebukes the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said unto them, his disciples, right? He could have excoriated them, but he says, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Mark 4, 38 through 40. And so as Calvin and many others have noted, our anchor, like our hope, is not an earthy anchor. The anchor that we cast for our soul is not shot down into the deep of the sea, but the anchor of our soul shoots up into heaven and draws our affections there and really draws us towards heaven as we lay our anchor there. It draws our affections there, right? If we are anchored, wherever our soul is anchored, that's where our affections are. Wherever your soul is anchored, friend, that's where your affections are. So you can work backwards. Where are my affections today? That's where my soul is anchored, and that's where my soul will be in despair when that thing is removed by the Lord. One day, beloved, the Bible says we will have no more need for hope. One day we will possess the promise, and we will hold on to it just as uh, Simeon held on to Jesus. We will hold on to Jesus as all who have hoped in him. Simeon and Anna, when he first arrived, and Mary Magdalene, right, after his resurrection, he says, do not cling to me now. You will cling to me later. She wouldn't let him go. Jesus promises, and now, for this time, abideth faith, hope, charity, that is love, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Faith and hope will make way to possession, and you will be left with what? Love. Isn't that marvelous? This hope we have, that faith will make way to sight and hope will make way to possession of the inheritance of Christ is truly hope that will never put you to shame. Grow in assurance of that hope and have a strong encouragement being anchored in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us leave Hebrews there for now. Let's arise for prayer, if able. A great God of heaven. It is it staggers us, Father, that you are willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of your counsel and confirmed it by a, an oath. 
that we would have a strong consolation if we have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. O Father, in the preaching of the word, the hope of glory has been set before these people. Father, we pray that not a single one here, not even the youngest child, would uh, um, uh, would find it in their heart to disparage the promises of God, but that instead all here would flee for refuge to lay hold of the promises in Christ. Oh, Father, we know only you can do this. So we pray that none here would leave without knowing Christ, that all here who may have found hope shaken would instead found, find hope renewed, and that they would re- leave with a strong uh, consolation that they would uh, leave as the first disciples did as they left the temple when the Lord ascended, that they would leave rejoicing and glorying in God, knowing that there is an inheritance reserved for them in heaven. Help us put away all things that would take and snatch our affections from this heavenly hope. We pray uh, this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our life. Amen.